the biggest thing for ADHD treatment is learning what systems work for you, acknowledging that it's going to change as like life changes and being in it together and working for it together. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 229 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyotsuka.com. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it in the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting. I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something, not one. So, obviously, I am just delighted to introduce you to Anita Robertson. Anita Robertson is a psychotherapist in Austin, Texas, and the author of ADHD and Us, A Couple's Guide to Loving and Living with Adult ADHD. Anita loves outdoor adventures, traveling with her ADHD besties, and making up silly songs about life. Anita, welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. How are you? I am doing all right. I'm really excited to be here. No, I am excited to have you here. Um, and I want to get, you know, all into your book because um, I think it's really great. But before we go there, can you tell us about your ADHD diagnoses first? So, you know, there's a connection. Yeah, of course. So I realized that I had ADHD when I was in grad school um, learning about the diagnostic criteria and how to diagnose for various illnesses. And in retrospect, it's always probably been very obvious. Um, you know, I have brothers that were diagnosed with ADHD, not that they got great treatment or anything like that. But that's where kind of, I guess, my ADHD journey started. And maybe I already knew that in some way. I, you know, this was over a decade ago. So um, I had a therapist at the time, you know, we went through the diagnostic process and we mostly just like reflected on 
oh, maybe what maybe makes sense about like different relationships or maybe not feeling like fully like I fit in now and then in my life and kind of the steps to take medicine if I wanted to get medication, which at that time I didn't. So it it started there and it didn't really feel like a really defining moment in my life. It helped me process some things, but I think I was really lucky in the sense that I got to grow up with a lot of really good support supports for ADHD, um, even without a diagnosis, just because I think, you know, it runs in my family so much. They There's some people who've really figured it out and some people who haven't. So you get that positive and negative learning experience. But that's really where it started. And then, um, you know, as I got more into my career and more into different life stages that uh, kind of took away the systems that were working for me and realizing that I had none and feeling the <laughs> executive functioning challenges like motherhood. Yeah. Um, those are those are where kind of I did some different leaps, like trying some medicine and having that be a really good experience. And then also learning just there's so much more in the field that's coming out. And so kind of being a part of the mental health field also allows me to get more of the resources, more of the connections, more more of the new information that's coming out that I get to integrate into my own life. So yeah, I mean, it was like getting a degree. Yeah. <laughs> my master's degree is kind of where the official diagnosis came. And then kind of as I hit the different stages, how I integrated that into my life. You know, what's really rare is that I talk to a clinician and they tell me that, oh, when I was studying, you know, I was reading the DSM and that's when I had this inkling that, oh, maybe maybe there's something going on, you know, with my brain. Maybe it's ADHD. So many of us go through all of that training and don't make that connection. So I, I just wanted to point that out. That's pretty rare that oh, I hear that. I, oh, wow. That's great. I, I mean, I do think, like, we're very classic in the ADHD, like, mark off all the boxes. Like, when I told some of my friends, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes total sense. Or I always thought that. I was like, well, why didn't you tell me this information? Not that at that time I really would have known what to do with it, nor did I think, you know, most therapists even knew what to do with that information. Right. Right. Um, you know, of like what we know today. Absolutely. I mean, even in the last five years, right, since the pandemic. Oh, for sure. Yeah, because that's like when everybody's like systems were taken away. So we're a talking. lot of people felt yeah. like their ADHD traits and it's like, what is going on? Um, exactly. Definitely, yeah. Pro, like All the structure's gone. Yeah. So I'm curious, what kind of a student were you? Mm. So like in high school, the environment that I was in was like not very... It was kind of more anti-intellectual. So I was very like, I don't know, like, oh, school doesn't matter, blah, 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 blah. You don't study. But it wasn't also a very challenging school. So grade-wise, I was fine. And nobody really put a lot of like emphasis on grades. And then when I went to college, it was like, ooh, people like to learn. And, and I went to the college in the Northeast, which I think also has a different focus on academics. Like literally, I remember like being in Spanish class and everybody understanding the Spanish teacher and they're just like, didn't your Spanish teacher speak to you in Spanish? I was like, no, like, <laughs> like, oh, no. like, not a lot, you know? So it was a really good environment for me in the sense where like, I was very interested in learning that was like reinforced, um, just like kind of culturally in the peer, like just with students. And I had like amazing professors. So I definitely had to learn some skills, but I wasn't really like struggling in the academic field just because, you know, you like he, you must be really smart because we know that, you know, 
what often happens to us with our ADHD brains or those of us with our ADHD brains is that first year of college when all the structure is kind of removed and we need to rebuild it, we struggle. But then you had the double whammy of having not having the the foundation as far as the educational foundation. So you were at a deficit there as well. Yeah, but I think, yes, okay. yes. Yeah, I did. Like, so there was, there was like some teachers, like my chemistry teacher that was really like kind of taught at a college level. So kind of actually in the way of where I think ADHDers thrive, where, you know, it's like yes. growth mindset, you have more autonomy, you get more consequences. Chemistry was so fun because you can like put things together and then colors change. And, you know, it was very interesting for me. And then I got a lot of praise and recognition like from that. And so that's where I went into school. You know, I was like, well, obviously I'm doing chemistry, you know, because that's just what I'm good at. And then I found like 15 other things that I loved. And so I just thought all of my interest in dopamine, like, <laughs> you know, but I, it was like I, I got straight A's. It was really it was really fun. And yes, like I think that is a benefit, at least from my family, is that for the most part, everybody is very intellectually gifted. And, yeah. and for me, I was going to say, you sound I, smart, Anita. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but my brother was always the super smart one, like super, mm. super smart. So like in my family world, like it never felt like I was that person because he got so much like praise and esteem and all this extra special stuff. Um, and was he the one with ADHD, diagnosed with ADHD? Yeah, he was. Mm. He was. Right. And I think that's the interesting thing too, because like for me, it, you know, like- like having brothers, multiple brothers with ADHD, like, and also seeing how, be, probably because I'm a female, so, you know, we're conditioned to be more accommodating and more aware. Like, it never felt like an ADHD thing to me. It always felt like a gender thing to me. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so of, of just kind of growing up in a different environment when we were in more of that neurotypical norms of what, like, what was like kind of maybe criticized a little bit more on my end versus like my brothers who I was like, but, but, but look, look, why, why this is unfair. Right. You know? So in that way, like, I think there was that benefit of one growing up in families where it's not like I felt different. I felt like the norm. Yeah. Um, and two, because of that, like, you know, I was in a lot of ADHD friendly environments, like growing up, you know, whether it was like outdoor education or, you know, I think my grandmother probably has ADHD and she's like one of the most fantastic people in the world and just has really figured out how to like use it as a superpower. So I, I had a lot of good examples growing up, but I think the little things that a lot of people have res trauma responses to that didn't get to grow up with support or in supportive environments, I don't have as much. And if I do, I still go back to it being a gender issue because of the yeah. differences of like being the only female and I have three brothers. Oh my gosh. I, I love that. And I just, um, I love that mindset, that growth mindset. We were talking about that right before we started. Okay. So Anita, you mentioned that um, in high school, it wasn't very challenging. And I guess, I don't know if it was the school or just the students that you hung around with that uh, didn't really care that much about learning. So I'm curious what you were like as a child, like what was elementary school like? And were you, you know, the bright eyed, bushy tailed, love to learn kind of kid? I think so. It's, it's a little, elementary school is a little different because that's when my parents got divorced. So there's a lot of like turbulence and my mom moved to a few different places and we lived with my grandparents for a while. And I definitely loved that as a kid. That was really fun. And I know the elementary school, when we ended up in Indiana, 
the elementary school that I did go to, I think was like you had to test and have certain things and it was a magnet school. And I really loved it there. I think there was a, a, it was a really good school. I think it maybe was like a gifted, talented track. I don't even know if that's the, if they had that term all the way back when I was in elementary school, but same, like I have no clue about grades. Like I don't really know any, any of that, but I do remember liking um, my elementary school. I liked learning about the different, there was like a different country every year that they focused on that we did a whole bunch of different things for. And I think from what my mom says, I think it was like a, a good reputation, like public magnet school at the time. And I would say like my friends and stuff, they were like, I, I definitely had people who were interested in school, but also it, like, like the comparison of like high school in Indiana versus, you know, where I went in New York, it just was, it's just totally different like environments. It was very like football, sports, those are the priorities, you know, just different like cultural values of what's, what's like kind of valued in that like high school group. But, and also too, like there was less AP classes just compared to other places in larger mm-hmm. cities. Of course, of course. So on the social end, was that always easy for you? Is that where you are gifted or did you struggle with that? I think like because I'm an extrovert and my brothers are introverts, like I think that's always come a little bit easier for me. Um, but also like my grandma and I are the only two extroverts in a very introverted family. So it's a very interesting dynamic. And that's where I feel like more off in some ways with the family unit. Cause I'm like, let's go do things and talk to people. And they're like, why would you do that? Like I'm giving you an environment where we don't have to do that. And I'm just like, but why? And seeing my grandma in the pandemic, she was like, Oh, there's a new person. Let me go talk to her. I'm like, grandma, I haven't seen you. Like, you know, and I was like, so I can relate to that. I think there's probably some, you know, like in elementary school and of course, middle school is always hard, like some confusion around friends. Um, maybe it was like partly ADHD, but there's just like a lot of trauma from the divorce. So I think there was always like an explanation and probably like people were like, oh, poor kid, if I had like a big emotional outburst, which I don't remember if I did or not, but, um, you know, like I, it could have happened. Like I, there was a reason there was like an understandable reason of just like how my parents divorced and all the stuff that happened to us growing up. So that always was kind of like the narrative that I was trying to figure out or like made sense with. So when my therapist at the time, you know, when I was in my late 20s and I realized that I probably that I had ADHD, it wasn't that hard to kind of like process some of that of just like understanding like, oh, yeah, this this would make sense. And this would have been helpful of of um, having certain supports with the social, emotional and relational piece. But like you know, in high school, I still am like best friends with my friends in high school. I have, I have great groups of friends. Like they're, they're amazing. Turns out most of them have ADHD, <laughs> like not surprising now, but, um, I did really have, like I did in high school, I was, I really found like a really core group of friends that were just phenomenal. And I love today and carry them with me and still I'm in contact, um, with so them. So they may not have been that as interested in learning, but it sounds like socially they they were really good friends. Like they cared about you and they helped you through what was a tough time. Yeah. Yeah. I would say like a lot of us came from broken families and there was like mm-hmm. one friend with parents together that we spent all our time with. <laughs> so they kind of like took us in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was it, there. I definitely had really good friendships. And I think that is like some strength that I've had um, that's really helped me. Uh, it's so funny. As I hear you talking, I have to tell you this, um, Anita, you sound just like 
um, a roommate of mine from law school. This, she's now a criminal defense attorney, and you have that same bubbliness, and you're just so natural as far as how you talk, and I feel like I'm talking to her. Oh. <laughs> her name's Pam, by the way. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I used to, like, I, one of my, like, hyper-focus and interests when later on in life, when I got to study abroad, I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And, and so I would always live in various countries, and everyone would always be like, oh, you're like the stereotypical, like, you know, person you see in the movies. And I always thought it was because I was, like, friendly and blonde and, you know, like, green-eyed. And, and But now, I'm kind of, when I look at movies, I kind of realize that I'm like, probably most of the people writing these scripts have ADHD. And it's like, all of them is like the classic, like, oh, pretty girl who can't get it together and makes all these mistakes. And like, you know, I was like, maybe it's like actually not just the physical appearance. Yeah. That, like, like here's blonde a- hair has nothing to do <laughs> with it, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, like I, in some recent trips, I watched some like kind of like romantic comedies that like, oh, you know, have so many horrible messages, but I watched a lot like growing up, but you know, it is the same, it's the same plot line, you know, like scattered, can't really do the executive functioning tasks, but like energetic and really eager and tries and, you know, then yeah. meets and sometimes they go the to Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Legally blonde. Is that what it's called? Legally Blonde? The one with... Um, the lawyer? Yeah. Yeah. Was it called Legally Blonde with... Uh, oh, my God. What's her name? Reese Witherspoon. Yes. Yes. There's okay. Legally Blonde and Legally Blonde, too. But yes, like the person who somehow magically navigates all this. Yeah. And, you yeah, know, because kind of, of great involved. social skills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can, like, put puzzles together out of the box thinker. Right. Doesn't exactly. Quite fit in, but that's why they all fall in love with her type deal. <laughs> so I'm curious. You left college. Did well in college. When did you decide to be a, okay, licensed clinical social worker? That's the acronym, right? Yes, that L-C-S-W. is the acronym. So yeah. I, I did Peace Corps after I graduated and found, and really found my people. I would say Peace Corps is also a very high, high attraction for like ADHD, you know? Um, so I did Peace Corps for like two and a half years. And then I- Where'd you go? I was in Honduras. And you have to tell us about it. You can't just gloss over it. Oh, I mean, it was it was an incredible experience. You know, I definitely learned a lot for sure and made like some of my best friends and really, like I said, found my people. Like it was kind of like, oh, this is what it's like. And not surprisingly, a lot of them later on in life had found, realized they have ADHD or when they read my book, they're like, Anita, I feel so seen. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't know. Like, you know, like we were all kind of just like, I don't know, in our, in our mid-20s, young 20s, trying to figure things out. Um, but I think it was really good. Like I learned a lot. I think there was, um, you know, there's a lot of of growth that that comes from that experience and also it was, I, I really wanted to do international development at the time. And then I was really learning how harmful most of the systems are. So like, and, and, and a lot, and then too, you know, with more growth and a lot more anti-racism work, like I also realized like some of the issues of Peace Corps and some of that white saviorism and that kind of reinforcement and, and all that stuff. So I really do appreciate the time there. I still have good friends there. You know, it was really sad to see the the coup that happened there and kind of the destruction and and the chaos afterwards. So I haven't been back since 2009, but it was it was a really I mean, like I think it was a good growth time. Like when I was talking to my grandparents, who've also like lived in lots of different places, we had some really good conversations about our role, change, our responsibilities, um, 
you know, how do we participate in systems that actively cause harm, but also can have benefits. And, and, and I think, you know, I remember there was one person, one of their friends who's probably from Kenya that was visiting them. And I was telling her all of this stuff and all of these thoughts. And, you know, I could also get very much in my head and like, you know, intellectualize and, and just really like kind of get into it. I was reading like a lot of different books and she's just like, oh, you're growing up. Like you're holding this place where you can see like it's not all black and white. It's not all yeah. good. It's not all bad. So in that sense, like, you know, I realized I was like, okay, I'm not going to do international development because like, you know, as a career, because there is uh, there is a lot of harm in those systems that are coming in into. And I was like, I don't really want to participate in that. So I was like, but I'll go to the nonprofit world. Yeah, that that's go back <laughs> to my community. It sounds so ADHD. You know, <laughs> let me just travel around. Well, actually, my my best friend and I were supposed to go to Japan, and that's like the one regret that I have that we didn't do. We were just kind of too tired from backpacking, and and I came home, and all my brothers were were in Austin, and we just hadn't been together in a really long time, so I ended up staying, and I you know I got into the nonprofit world, and also started learning more about that. But at that time, I also was like, okay, I want to do a little bit more. And I ended up doing my uh, undergrad. I eventually ended up in psychology because there were a lot of interesting things that were, that happened in my family that had like a lot of big consequences. So I always was curious of like, why, right? Of trying to make sense of my childhood, of trying to make sense of the people around me. And so then, you know, I was like, okay, well, nonprofit, when I leave that world's they have some issues too. Let me go into the mental health field. Um, and also at that point, like at least in Austin, if you didn't have a master's, you're kind of limited in what you could do since we're such a big college town. You know, we have a lot of like a lot of higher level of education. So that's where I went. And it ended up being a really good fit for me. You know, like a, it's definitely an ever evolving field and interest of mine. But yeah, that's that's how I ended up going to grad school was I talked to some friends who were social workers and um, all the different things that you could do with the license. Like, I mean, you can do pretty much anything with it. So it's like, wait for ADHD. If you get bored, you can just move on to something <laughs> else. <laughs> yeah. And also to just the benefits of like private practice if you wanted to have a family, which that was something that we were considering of just having a little bit more of that flexibility. So, uh, so anyways, yeah, that's where I got, I got my graduate degree. Then I did, you know, my clinical hours and, and then got my clinical license. So, so, you know, it's ADHD, obviously now you have the benefit of hindsight. What are some of the symptoms that you always wondered about, but now you recognize them as clearly ADHD, your symptoms? Well, so I, I talk a lot. <laughs> no. You know, uh, yeah, I that, that was the one thing. But I think, you know, I think it's in and of itself, like the, the ADHD stuff that might have not always landed well, but now I know how to hold with better supports is the movement, which is, you know, like I was known for just dancing everywhere, like everywhere inappropriate. But I also was like on the dance team, you know, like I never got in trouble either in high yeah. school. Like it wasn't really fair. Like my other friend pointed it out. She's like, you don't have, no one ever gets you in trouble. Cause it was that like, you know, high school, like it football cheerleader. That yes, exactly. no wrong. So like I could just dance around all the time and talk and I don't, I don't think I really got as much negative feedback around those traits. But, you know, you would think like 
I don't know. It's like if it's a boy and they can't stay in their seat, then they're like, oh, here, you, there's like, let me get you help. But with a girl, it's just like, I don't even know what people thought. I think I was really oblivious too. Um, well, I think they probably thought you were really charming. <laughs> so they gave me a break, yeah, right? Yeah, said. He's just like, when he saw me, I was at a dance class and he's like, you were bouncing. Like when, you know, everybody stands still and and like during like, when they teach a new move and I'm like, bouncing around and moving. And I mean, that's what he was drawn to. And then like, I look at my kid when he was like two in music class and like all the other kids are sitting there and they're just like following the teacher and doing, playing their little musical instruments. And my kid's like rolling around and climbing up stuff. And I'm like, I, what? Like, huh? Like how do other kids actually sit still? (laughs) Like, I just don't understand. But I think I've always been, um, I've always been in like very good, like outdoor environments, right, which are really great for ADHD. So I think that was something that that I got growing up was a very high active lifestyle. You know, my grandparents would take us on trips. We went to like the Grand Canyon. We went to the Smoky Mountains. We did, we did a whole bunch of like outdoor adventures. My uncle also worked at Outer Bound for 30 years. And so I got to go like free on Outward Bound stuff when I was younger. And like, that was like the best thing ever. So like, in some ways, like my ADHD traits is the things that I love or what I think about. I'm like, well, that makes sense that I loved being outdoors and having high intense adventures and thought rock climbing and skiing were like the best things ever and always want to do activities and always I'm down to travel and hang out with friends. Like, those are the things I'm like, oh yeah, that is ADHD, but that is stuff that I love. And I love my other ADHD besties that like do those things with me and and we just have so much fun together. So, I mean, I think that's, you know, like it is, I, I wish I would have gotten some supports around it, but I think I did hear a lot of things. Like my uncle was very, very helpful of like, holding that compassionate or the positive acceptance pillar that I talk about of just like, hey, you know, it's like you like to talk a lot and that's great and we like to listen and we want to make sure other people have a turn, you know, which is such a wonder. I mean, like when I heard that as like a kid and so like what kid in the 80s and 90s heard that or like, you know, my mom, because she was always into dance, which I, I now know is like one of the best things for sensory input. So I dance like pretty much all the way until I got pregnant and had a lot of postpartum issues that prevented me physically from doing that. So like, I always got a lot of good, I think, like ADHD regulation from that movement. And she would say, well, if the teacher's critiquing you, it means that they see potential, right? Ah. So like, so like these little droplets, like I said, of like, kind of like really what I would consider good ADHD advice today that nobody knew back then. I definitely heard some of those things that made it easier to like embrace a growth mindset, even though I didn't really embrace that till much later on in life because <laughs> it was very fixed growing up. But I did get those little droplets that I think. So I think like my ADHD stuff that I really like, I really like about myself, if that makes sense. But I also will recognize that I have grown up in and I continue to find very like neurodivergent affirming spaces and tend to avoid non-ones because I'm like, well, this sucks. I, why would I participate in this and tend to leave those environments? <laughs> totally. Totally. So it sounds like, I mean, it wasn't like your childhood was without struggle, but somehow with this growth mindset that sounds like it was imprinted from your grandparents and then went down to your parents and your siblings, it you were always able to kind of step back and say, okay, well, this happened, but 
this is the good thing that can come of it, right? Or at least develop an awareness around the fact that it's not, it's not you. There's not a problem with you. But sometimes we need to let other people talk. <laughs> right, right. But in a very kind way. Yeah. You know? um, and I wish I had more of that. I think that would have been really helpful. And I definitely have more skills around it now of just, you know, acknowledging what can happen. Uh, and also, like, I, like, you know, I know my people and I know the people who are like, can we just like my husband will just be like, oh, my gosh, it's amazing. Like, there's no pauses. I hear no pauses. But you guys are like talking nonstop. But both of you talk like, you know, so like if he's there, like, I know I need to pause and like make sure there's space for him or somebody else, you know, you know, or somebody new of just saying like, you know, like I can skip over words and because like my brain's all all over here. So if you get confused, just let me know and I will like go back and, and, and explain it. Like it's not offensive to me where it might be offensive or like, you know, disruptive to somebody else. So I think it's just like knowing those things. And I wish like I got a lot of supports, but I didn't get the words. We didn't have the name. We didn't have the words for it. So I think like, yeah, there is definitely lots of trauma. And that was like the overarching theme. But like in the sense of the ADHD experience, I think for the most part, and it almost feels so far removed. I'm sure there was more stuff I processed like over a decade or 15 years ago. Yeah. Mom. But, you know, and and the same thing, like my sauce is like when he goes over to like my parents' house or something like that, I'm like, hey, look how much better I'm doing. Like I close cabinets like 90% of the time, you know, like (laughs) it's kind of in this way, you know, I didn't really get any systems and, and until parenthood, at least I, I just avoided everything. I just traveled. Everything fit in a backpack. Less was more. I was very minimalistic. And so like I really did kind of find different systems that worked for me or when I was like in outdoor leadership. That was such a great way to learn so much of the executive functioning skills that like I carry on today from being a camp director, a nature camp director. But I think like you know, in and of itself, like, yes, I definitely have challenges. And when like life happens and all my systems get wiped out, like I feel it, I feel the executive functioning challenges. And I also will recognize that like, I can also see that like the systems, the environments, all these things work. So like they make such a huge difference where, and that's why I'm such a big advocate for ADHD. It's like more about the environment and the relationships around it that really makes it, makes it or breaks it. And then too, like, since I have lived in a lot of different countries, like the U S is kind of particularly cruel, like in, uh, not having some of these like executive functioning skills, like most places you don't have to like book things year in advance. You don't have to like get on daycare wait list, like before you're even pregnant. Yes. Like you don't have to book camps like in January and February, like the ones in Austin sold out in like February, some of them did. And it's just like, this is ridiculous. You know, so there's like less consequences or just even like how we manage time and the construct of time. Um, Totally true. Yeah. Yeah. I can also countries where you show up an hour late for, you know, a party and everybody's an hour late versus here. Yeah. You'd be frowned upon. Right. And there's other countries that are like, I used to do the Austin Samba school here. And so there is like kind of connected into the Brazilian community in Austin. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? These are my people because they were so loud and excited <laughs> and, you know, like energetic to even say hello. And I was brand new and it like, oh, I was like ADHD fuel for my brain where I'm like, oh, I need to live in Brazil. This is the place I need to be, you know, <laughs> like, you know, just just the differences of. Um, Although it could be worse. We could be in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> I, as much as I love Germany. 
oy, as far as executive function, right? They right. took it around. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it, yeah, going back to the part of just like though that, that embracing that chattiness and the talkativeness, you know, like I think there's just that different cultures hold have better environments for ADHD. And like you said, definitely some probably are worse. <laughs> so, Anita, I want to congratulate you on your book, um, ADHD and Us, A Couple's Guide to Loving and Living with Adult ADHD. I really think it's the best book on ADHD and relationships that I've read. Oh, so, thank you. And I really mean that. So when I was writing the chapter on relationships um, for my book, my editor said to me, you can't just tell people to leave their relationship. And I was like, why not? I mean, if your partner's a jerk, you know, if they provide no positive emotion, all they tell you about is what you've done wrong. They step all over your values. They tell you you're a failure and it's all your fault and nothing's going to change. And then they gaslight you by lying you, to you and saying, oh, no, no, that happened. You just don't remember. They don't appreciate you for who you are. Why can't I say that? And I went on to tell her that without positive emotion in the form of praise, acknowledgement, fun, recognition of that ADHD partner's strengths and a desire to be this team together against the world, like friggin' give up, go home, find someone else. And so she still said to me, you can't tell people to leave their partner. And I, so I guess that's why I had an editor, right? She fr phrased it much more artfully than I ever would. But I have to say, after reading your book, I think that's what I really loved about it is your advice is simple, it's straightforward, it's fun, and it's creative. And it was all built around what you call these five relationship pillars. It's just, um, it's a really easy read. And it's not, um, sometimes I pick up these relationship books and I'm like, this is so cheesy. Nobody's going to sit there and do this stuff versus like the little games that you have. They're, you know, they're good. So I want to know, first of all, why did you decide to write this book? So I was contacted um, to to write it just because they there isn't a lot, or I guess when they were like searching for a writer that wasn't you know, had like 10 books already under their belt. They couldn't find anybody who specialized in both ADHD and relationships. And because that, I kind of fell into the specialty just because I was very interested in couples counseling. And then at the time in my life, like where I was doing like some great, great trainings, I was also struggling with like having a toddler that would just like tornado throw everything on the ground and like just, just, you know, like what, where does all this stuff go? Where, why do I have to have all this stuff with a kid? So I was struggling with some of my ADHD executive functioning mm -hmm. systems. And so I, I, I went in and I would like sneak away into like the individual like ADHD part to help, help understand like, huh, how do I kind of like change some of these things? Cause like, this is, this is not an okay environment for my, for my kid. And then also my, my husband who like grew up in a super clean environment, you know, it was very dysregulating for him. So I was like, okay, we need some help here. So anyways, my coping style from childhood is like, okay, there's like an issue. How do we make things better? Right. That puzzle solving piece and interest solving piece. And so, so I really enjoyed this before the pandemic doing these boot camps, right. Uh, where like I, I would have couples come in and do challenges and just build these skills. Cause so much of what I would see later down the road is like people just both having like these huge trauma responses and just total misunderstanding. And there was so much toxicity and negativity there, but they could have even tried couples counseling, but they'd never got the right skills, right? You're using neurotypical skills. And I still hear this today in like relationship books and podcasts and stuff where I'm like, 
where, where one person has has stated that they have ADHD, and I'm just like, oh, heartbreaks! Like, don't no. <laughs> like, this is this is you saying that you have to sit still and listen without any. That's that's not that's not how it works. That's not how you guys are working as a team. So, anyways, I was contacted in the beginning of 2020. Wow. Ironically, to write oh, this perfect book. timing. Sort of. No, not really. Well, how old was your child? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's the best time to write a book, but of doing this, um, it was it was through a publishing company. I think you've had a couple other authors on your podcast that have also used them. So they kind of like give some type of layout and format. So it's pretty easy for the ADHD brain um, to like follow. And so I, I talked to my spouse about it. You know, there is like hints of the pandemic coming up. So it was just like, well, I don't know. You know, we talked about it and decided to go ahead and do it, uh, even though like it would be a very intense experience. And I do like how it turned out. I do think like the editors in that process was really helpful. They were really focused on like executive dysfunction. And that was like, a, that actually helped me with the five pillars. I was doing them already, but I was like, man, this, this is so depressing. Like, I don't, I don't like just focusing on the deficits. Like this yes. is all you don't and they were like, oh, you can only do activities with pen and paper. And I'm like, well, this isn't ADHD friendly at all. You know, like I was like, huh? So anyways, like that was, I think, actually really helpful in like the organization and structure and made the stuff that I do even better. And then also do some deeper dives into research to back up the book where I'm like, hey, now I can say why this thing works or now I can say why this mm-hmm. intervention works or why praise is so important or the reward is so important. And and since I've written the book, I've done a huge deep dive uh, into occupational therapy and sensory needs and those types of things. And so I have a lot of extra extra reasons why a lot of the stuff that I do with couples that have a lot of sensory feedback tends to work. And so it's just been a really interesting journey writing the book. And part of it was the reason I did want to write it is because I just saw so many couples at that time, you know, and this is before the pandemic, um, you know, just struggling and it just felt so unnecessary. You know, like it's just you, I saw two people who are trying so hard both were trying so hard time and time again. And there was just so much like trauma and pain and like just hurt and helplessness that would get them to this really negative spot. And I also do premarital counseling too. And so like, because I prevention, I'm like, we can just stop all these things from happening if we just give people the tools, right? That's sort of my MO. And so when I started, when I had a younger couple and they were like, oh, one person has ADHD. And I was listening to them. I was like, we don't need to talk about any of this at all. We just need to get you some skills. And that's really when I started just that building the skills and seeing how amazing it was for people who are coming in and like didn't have stigma around ADHD or mental illness. And they were willing to work and grow, but they had a lot of the fixed mindset and negativity and those things, but they could laugh at it because they weren't married. They were just in that stage where it's like, we're planning a wedding and like, you're not showing up or why can't you do these things? And it was like the beginnings of those misunderstandings. And so that's sort of where the idea of the book came from too, of like, I'm not, writing is definitely not my favorite thing. I think now I realize with my kid being in elementary school, like English is just hard to spell, right? And I would get negative feedback all the time and like corrected all the time. There's no positive feedback. My brother could always write really well, but I, so it's like, ah, that was his thing. And I know. Well, you did, you did a great job. And I think you did such a good job for the ADHD reader, again, because it's concise, um, straightforward, 
you take a strength-focused viewpoint and you talk about the things that really make ADHD relationships special, but you, you also talk about the why behind common ADHD relationship problems. You know, I don't know, forgetting things, you know, we might struggle to start things we don't want to start and then we struggle to finish them. But you give an example, you talk about how the ADHD brain works and how they likely feel in your example, and then you let the reader know how the non-ADHD partner likely feels in the same situation. And so it just creates empathy. Yeah. Yeah. There's that bridge. I hope so. And I think it, the people who have read my book before things got bad, the feedback I get that it is, it's it's just been huge and life-changing in those ways. And I think that was the underlying motivation of just, you know, my my heart breaks for so many ADHDers who are also my favorite people of just like the little traumas and just the unsupportive environments that they grew up in. And then it comes to a head right? Generally, like in mid-stage life, that's where I would normally find the couples. Like, you know, they would have a high, they found a really good job that was ADHD friendly. And so they were thriving in that. But with kids in those mid-stages, like that's where the pain points really started. And I think it was, and it's also really helpful having like a non-ADHD partner who's like so clear and like it's so good at like breaking things down and detail oriented to also help me understand like some of his experience or like even systems that work really well for ADHD that help me understand and explain things to the non-ADHD partner. And one person from this presentation that I did uh, a few months ago, they were saying, you know, like the, she's like, it blew me away when I, when I was talking about what I do with a lot of relationships and couples work is, you know, it's like holding the non-ADHD partner like accountable for like choosing their own comfort and recognizing that they got to grow up in a world that was designed for them and met their their needs um, over saying, wow, look how hard you like worked on this like table. Like this side of the table is clean versus <laughs> like, I can't believe you can't do this. I shouldn't have to say mm-hmm. this, blah, 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 blah. And and so that I think was like one of those twists. And I do sometimes see that it can take some work, <laughs> you know, depending on, on the couple and how much exposure that they've had. I guess really, I think age-wise, you know, uh, how much stigma they hold around mental health and illness and the ingrained fixed mindset. But I, I think that's like a really big thing. It's just you know, for the non-ADHD partner to also, one, have their experience validated that it's really confusing when you, something sometimes just get, gets done and sometimes it doesn't or that, like, they don't really understand what's going on, but also, like, to give them the actual tools to say, okay, well, this is how you actually work together, right? And this is also uh, a way, like, when you're trying to say, like, I, oh, yeah, that, that sucks that, you know, that my loved one had to go through all of this, Right. And of course, I want to change it. But then you're like, but no, I don't, I don't want, that's, this is just how it should run or like, you know, the criticism and all the things that you're talking about of like, just leave that person, like start coming up and, and also holding space that that's also how most of us were raised. Like if we went to public school, if Mm -hmm. our parents, like, you know, like we kind of got like that, that punishment um, and criticism when things didn't go wrong. So it's like also this other person is just doing what that was done to them. And so I try to hold like in the gross mindset course that I have online right now, I try to hold a lot of space and empathy of like, 
you guys were just doing what you were taught, but now you have the the choice. You can you can act in a different way. And when couples actually start doing it, it's amazing because the non ADHD partner like will tell me like, oh my gosh, if somebody did that to me, I would want to smack them in the face. Like if somebody like broke down the steps that I need and then was like, good job, I love you. Like I would feel like they're treating me like a, a child, but then they will come back and they're like, okay, I did it. And this person loves it. And they're like washing the dishes and cleaning up the kitchen. So I guess this is working. <laughs> and so kind of really holding those differences of like what works for one person doesn't work for the other person and that's okay. But what, what maybe the non-ADHD partner is doing is like, oh, I wouldn't want this, so I don't want to treat them that way. But it's it's really, it, it doesn't land in that way. It actually is very unhelpful and can trigger those like little traumas growing up where you didn't get the resources or supports and then just blamed for it or somebody's mad at you and you don't understand why. Well, you're providing the awareness, right, to both parties that, oh, this is why. It's not, you know, a character failing, you know, a moral problem. This is why. It's just two different brains. So let's back up. And let's talk about what you consider to be the five ADHD relationship pillars. And what do you mean by that? Are those the things that you need in a relationship for it to be successful? I think so. And these are good relationship pillars no matter what, right? Like, But I think it's like a make or break with ADHD. It's like starvation or you're at least you're full. And so the, the ones, that, the five that I came up with, because I really did feel that Couples need a guide, right? They need a a way to understand it versus like kind of talking about all these different examples. And so if you could just have some type of compass, that's why the the, I call them the five pillars. It's like kind of this foundation. And so when anytime you're not connecting, you can come back and look and say like, okay, are we living up or or what are we missing here? So the five pillars that I talk about are praise, growth mindset, games, which is just, you know, novelty, positive acceptance and acknowledgement. And games is a lot about, it's about having fun together, right? Having a sense of humor, doing these little things, exercises, and and just making life fun together, yeah. which is so important for our yeah, brains. Sure, you have fun. And I think that's the thing that people don't realize it's like, or, you know, what we grew up with is like, oh, you can have fun after the task is done. And it's like, sometimes ADHDers need to have fun before they can get the task done. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's that novelty, it's that interest place piece and it's play and play is just such a human need even though we like tend to dismiss it for adults but also too like games and play is really when you're talking about romantic adult relationships it's also sex too it's like that part of it Mm -hmm. you know that that's where it goes under in the umbrella uh, for that type of relationship but yeah it's it's true though for like if you have a kid or if it's like a friend you need to have activities that are interesting for you both that like make you excited. And it doesn't have to be super big or fancy or anything like that, but making sure you have moments throughout the day where you have that joy, where you have that like excitement, that novelty, that fun, and that type of connection. You have this one, um, which one is it? Um, It's one of the games. And I thought it was so interesting just as far as um, developing awareness with each other about what's important and what isn't. I don't know. It's on page 28. And you basically have your clients, I guess, put together a list of their acts of care, right? The things that mm-hmm. um, that they can do. So I can give you a kiss in the morning. I can clean up the kitchen. I can tell you what I appreciate about you. I can hug you. And then 
you you list, the ADHD person lists, how much energy is required from your brain to do it. And then your partner tells you how meaningful it is that you do that, you know, specific act of care. And so, for example, a kiss in the morning for the ADHD brain, you know, that person says, oh, that's like a one in terms of energy. But it's so meaningful to your partner because your partner would, you know, not always, but this particular partner chose a five. So right. those are the things that are so easy to do versus some things that are really hard for you to do. And then your partner's like, well, I don't even really care about that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think I see that a lot with um, couples who haven't gotten the supports and the knowledge that they need is that the ADHD partner will be hearing something and thinking like they need to make it into this huge complicated thing or what their partner's wanting. And it takes so much for them. And it isn't actually landing on their part for their for their significant other and, and vice versa. And so I think this clarity and I will have like couples use it as a whiteboard and check ins like it actually brings a lot of awareness. And it's like it can take months of doing this for the other person to really believe that this has an impact on the other because it's just so not in their sphere. They're like, really? Like me yeah. telling you something nice really means that much to you, you know? Because like people also have like different cultures, different backgrounds, mm-hmm. different ages, you know, like, oh, if you say, if you say something more than once, it loses value, right? Whereas like oftentimes for the ADHD or if they have a good experience with authentic praise, not like manipulative or like low quality right. praise. Because we know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because everybody has a different like story and background with it. It's like kind of one of the the tricky, tricky pillars because people have opinions on it. <laughs> so now like I'm like, okay, let me like, all right, we got to define high quality, low quality, like all of this stuff, all the the traumas that can come from praise <laughs> as well. Yeah. But but I think it it's that repetitive time to before they can actually believe it and see it, that like, how do you invest in your relationship in a way that is really efficient and like is getting getting what you want. Because like I said before, I this neurodiverse relationship or even two ADHD partners, what happens is like they're the hardest workers and they try so hard, but they're just using the wrong tools and they end up like digging these beautiful, magnificent tunnels away from each other versus like, can we put this energy with the right tools? And then, oh, that's going to feel so good. And it does. It's amazing to witness and see. Well, for example, in that chart that you have, um, or that exercise or game, you call it a game, the game that you've created, and this example, you know, a kiss in the morning, the amount of energy is a one, yet it's a five to your partner, and a hug is the same thing. But then when you look down the list, cleaning up the kitchen, doing the dishes, paying the electrical bills, planning the date night, all of that basically leads to the same thing, right? Wanting to feel like that, like you appreciate each other. Mm -hmm. So- it makes total sense, but I think we lose sight of why is someone getting so upset about the fact that you're not doing certain things because they feel like they're not valued, right? And it will also brings clarity too of how much the cost is because most of the time it's very different, which is why it's such a superstar relationship, you know, combo, I think, because they have such different strengths. But like a lot of times you're just like, well, wait, why can't you just make the doctor's appointment? But that could be like a 10 out of 10 for somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, and even like what I was telling you earlier of like, ah, my spouse isn't here to like help me with the tech stuff. Like him just being here and doing those things for me is like, you know, a hundred out of 10. It's just like, you know, that little thing that wouldn't really probably even register. It's because I've, I've, I just, 
you know, had bad experiences with it. And therefore, like, I have big reactions when things don't go well. Like, even him just being there, he'll be like, you know, I didn't do anything. I was like, yes, but you were there in case something happened. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. like, you know, like, those are the things that, like, he would never realize unless I told him that and vice versa. And so I think, yeah, that it, like, it's just the awareness, right? And and I think it, it's such a game changer because it really brings that sense of closeness and intimacy and just so much reward because, like, you're you're feeling good. Well, and what I've always said, so when I got married, within a year of getting married, I remember I read this book called The Good Marriage. And I don't even know why I read it because, you know, I hate to admit this, but my relationship has been the easiest thing probably out of my whole ADHD list. But it's because of what they said, that if you can be a team together against the world, then, you know, everything is surmountable. But when you don't have the awareness of what's important to your spouse or your partner, and they don't have the awareness of what's important to you. And then, as you said, you bring all your traumas into the relationship. It's really hard to be that team together against the world. Yeah, exactly. Or when you're trying to be on the same team, but you have different rules. And so you're because <laughs> like, you don't even understand, you, you don't right? Yeah, you're like you're both trying to be on the same team. It's just that you're, it, 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 yeah, it's that lack of awareness. And I, I totally agree. Like my relationship is, has always been amazing um, and super supportive. And I am so proud of how we've grown together. Okay, but, so I want to, I want to yeah. talk about that because I always feel guilty when I make that comment. But it was easy from the beginning, right, Anita? Yeah, I would say so. Um, and why? Tell me why. Why was it easy from the beginning? Because I'm I'm thinking of younger women, and like I tell my daughter all the time, look, if he doesn't think you walk on water now, he's not going to think it 10 years from now. You know what I mean? I mean, the chances are he's not going to. I mean, I honestly, so I will give so much credit to my grandparents. Like, um, I think my grandparents are really, to me, the the healthy relationship uh, that I saw growing up. Um, you know, I learned like what not to do. So I never was super invested in even being in a relationship because of how my, how, how much trickled harm from the divorce happened. So I was like, well, I, I wouldn't want that. So, you so know, are like, you I saying you had this example of a relationship that didn't work and you could kind of figure out why, but then you had your grandparents and that, that my grandparents, did work? Yeah. And, okay. and, and, I, and my grandfather um, died like maybe eight months ago. And so for his Aww. funeral, Aww. I, he, yeah, I mean, was, I got I'm him sorry. for almost 40, 41 years. And Lucky so, and just such an amazing person. But I learned a lot, right, at, of kind of connecting to his side of the family. So my thought really with these relationships that really fit and flow like naturally, and this is, you know, I have not researched this at all. This is a story I tell myself um, as I like, you know, go through different stages of life and try to like figure it all out is that there is actually a lot of ADHD that runs on my grandpa's side of the family, but he definitely didn't have it. And so, uh, but like some of my cousins, you know, got like had diagnoses. And so we were talking and we hadn't seen each other since we were like teenagers, since our last like family reunion. So I realized I was like, okay, my grandfather probably grew up with ADHDers that he loved in his life, right? And my grandmother, you know, especially, you know, she's 96, almost 97. And, you know, she does not care about social norms and all the other things. She just, uh, she loves herself, right? Like when, 
my brother went to King's College, Cambridge. And so when she was visiting them, like she climbed a tree and she was probably in her 80s, 70s, 80s. Oh, I love her. Fell into the water and just was laughing and laughing. And I was living at Spain at the time. So she came to visit me and she was just like, how many like 80 some year olds can like fall into the river? So like in the sense of like this, and, and the way that my grandfather like adored that part of her and the balance that they had, even though it wasn't conventional, right? Because like she was not the stereotypical female at all, her generation, but they they had adventures together. They traveled, they visited me in every single country I lived in. They lived all over the world. They just, and they just loved people. People were just attracted to them. And my grandfather was this very cool, calm, patient, amazing listener, like just this amazing person. And so when I look at my spouse, I'm like, wow, I actually found my grandpa. (laughs) Um, And I think knowing like my in-laws and his family too, like I think there's a lot of ADHD in his family. And I think that's why like he knows like how to help clarify, like in his brain, he's like, oh, you guys don't know how to clarify things. So let me like get this to be very clear and blah, 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 blah. blah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, your brain's amazing. And like I said before, he saw me like prancing around and he liked, he liked the ADHD parts of me. Right. And so I think there's this, this, these environments that people do grow up in where they love somebody and they see them struggle. And so like my non ADHD friends, we have also kind of like talked about this too, that they tend to either have a parent or somebody else in their life that probably had ADHD. And they're like my bet, like they, they would help me move. They would help me stay focused in like one room. We have the best friendship. And like even one of my best friends from high school, I feel like she was my translator, my ADHD translator, not realizing I needed a translator because we didn't have that type of awareness. But like she would say like in chemistry class, we we ended up being in all the science classes together. And they were like, everyone would ask me, but you're the one who's telling me it. But just no one could understand what I was saying because like I didn't need to break down every single step. I was like, oh, this just makes sense right? But she could ask the questions and then explain it to other people. <laughs> and, so, mm. and so I think there's like these, that to me, just from my own experience, you know, of seeing kind of like how these different environments, right, with people that have different relationships growing up in like neurodiverse households, how they really can like balance out and they get these skills that I talk about in the book, right? Um, and because of that, and I think because of the growth mindset that both of us, my my spouse and I have embraced, like we have done a lot of things that have been really challenging and hard and be able to support each other. So in all of these relationships, whether it's platonic, whether it's intimate, whatever, it's almost like, I think the key is that you're both yourselves completely and you love each other for it. You're not trying to change this or change that, even though you may be upset about something, you can actually talk about it and, you know, bring awareness to what what you're challenged by in their behavior. For sure. And I think that's where positive acceptance comes in. And that's really Mm -hmm. where the personal boundaries come in of holding that this person is where they are at and loving them for it and realizing like, you know, they're coming from a good place. They are inherently a good person that loves you. But you also get to set some boundaries and stuff like that, you know, of, of the things that might not work for you in that regard, it isn't, you know, like you don't lose yourself either. So I think there's that balance. And that's where I try to break down the boundary part of boundary work and what that means in a relationship um, under that positive acceptance pillar. Because without that, it's just leading to trauma. Yeah. 
Oh, gosh, that's interesting. Okay, so there's a couple things that you've said throughout the book, and I just want to highlight them. And if you could just say a couple words about them. So I hear a lot, you know, in a lot of relationship books um, that you're supposed to use I statements instead of you statements. But you added to that and you said, the story I am telling myself is, why is that so helpful? Can you talk a little bit about that when you are like struggling with your partner? Yeah, I think that is the empathy part, right, of the connecting piece that isn't divisive. Because a lot of times our traumas and our our, the way our brains process information really create these two different realities for two different people. And when you're using the story I'm telling myself, it, one, prevents the you statements of like, you don't care. You obviously are prioritizing this instead of me, blah, 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 blah. So it, it helps not use the you statement, which is where people go. But it also gives us insight into the story and why. And I think that is a connecting piece, right? And it keeps you on the same team. Because ultimately, like, I don't see whether it's friendships, family, or just people in general, they don't really want to hurt each other. Like, they might in a moment when they feel hurt and misunderstood. But when you're, when you have like that story and it's easier to engage in a story, it's easier to hear somebody say, like, well, this really reminded me of the time in my childhood. Um, like, here, let me use an example, a personal example. So, like, I think. You know, my husband's really good at responding to crises because probably there was like a lot growing up with (laughs) his his family and like same for mine. So like both of us are very like kind of over functioners in our in our family dynamics. But one of the things that I that's so important to me is like honest communication and that I don't I don't want to have to be in a crisis before I need help. And so, you know, when I tell him like, well, the story I tell myself or what it brings up for me is like when I tell you this and I tell you how it's important to me, but then somebody in your family has this happen, I feel like the kid that got abandoned again. I feel Mm -hmm. like it's all about my parents and their divorce and all these things. And it was supposedly about us, but we were really like kind of, you know, everybody was like a mess, right? But like it brings that stuff up. And so Hearing that takes him out and connects him back to me and like the stuff that's coming up for me and why it's so important. And we've, you know, we continue to work on this because this is like we're trained in different ways and how we respond. And like it's a healing thing for me to be able to have him hold like an ask without it having to be like this urgent crisis thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like an example of that, that like really kind of will take us away. Cause if not, then it's like, okay, cause we've done it the other way too. And like, it's like, but this and this and this and blah, 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 blah. And like, you know, you go into your own defensiveness and, and, you know, we'll have like, we'll eventually come around and realize like, oh, wow. Like, you know, sometimes we are just really conditioned. Like when somebody in your family says jump, you just jump, right? Like, you know, we, we grew up with them. Our nervous system, our brains are just wired to be in those dynamics. And that is totally fine. But that's also where you can also see some of the times where you're working as a team and then it kind of feels like you're not. So I think that's an example of like when I share it as like the story I tell myself or what comes up for me, what it reminds me of. And of course, he knows my history and he knows my family really well. So like he all of a sudden is then 100% with me versus like protecting his family or protecting this or like, you know, he understands now, right? Yeah. And so I think it's a very connecting language. And I love that. And I think you talk about this in your book too, that I'm sure you don't say it in this way because I'll stumble all over it, but you talk about how, you know, having arguments, fighting is not a bad thing. 
But fighting and just leaving and then not resolving it, you know, it's not bad to fight, but it can't be the same fight over and over and you never resolve it. Right. Yeah. Because that just kind of like, you know, pain over time. But yeah, I think the thing is, is like being in relationships, no matter what kind of relationship you're, you're, you will have a conflict of needs, Mm -hmm. a valid conflict of needs, right? I love how you phrase it that way. Not fighting, but a conflict of needs. That's great. Yeah, because that's really where it's coming from, right? And so how do you learn how to tolerate and navigate that as a couple, as a family? And, you know, it's like stuff that I really work on, like giving my son like this kind of environment and foundation for him to be like, we talk about it all the time, right? Like his need is in conflict with my need. And then how do we deal with it? And, And not being so scared of conflict, right? And just knowing how to hold each other and their experiences, and that's positive acceptance, acknowledgement, right? That goes such a huge way because, like, it's okay. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that I am disappointed if my spouse goes out and does something that's really fun and I don't get to go. Like, I miss him. It's not always necessarily a negative thing. But most of us grew up, who are at least my age, grew up where you didn't get to have an emotional experience. And I can see it as a parent. I'm like, oh gosh, sometimes our feelings do like feel very inconvenient to whatever task is at hand, you know? But I I noticed like that, like wanting to shut my kid's experience down versus joining and being able to tolerate that. Like, hey, if we didn't get ice cream and he thought we were going to get ice cream, that is the biggest thing that's going on in his mouth. I'm holding everything else, right? And so I think it's just like this, these responses that we have learned for survival for a lot of adults today that like emotions are dangerous. Or if you say something, then the other person's going to feel bad or you're going to ruin it. Like they're almost so powerful versus like learning how to tolerate discomfort so you can move through it and celebrate it. It's that embracing the failure, embracing those things that really kind of move some of these patterns of relationships into like just a really great connected one. And I think that's why like so much of the parents today focus so much on the social emotional learning and saying they're sorry and validating the person's experience. We never got that most of the time as kids, but like we're really focused on giving our kids that need, but yet we don't know how to necessarily do that in our relationships. And so when I do work with parents, I always pull it, I have them practice with the kids because they will do all these pillars with their kids. They will do games with their kids, but they won't Mm -hmm. do it with each other. So like whether it's just practicing like some executive functioning skills or applying like how they are so strong as parents in this area and what would it be like if they could just put some of that energy to switch it to themselves. And so I think it's a really big strength that like a lot of a lot of parents today are moving in that direction. And then it's just kind of like, okay, you have the skill. Let's just apply it to the person that you love. It's the adult, right? where you get all the shoulds and all the other things and all the other big reactions. Yeah. So I'm curious about being late because I know that that's, that's a big one. That's certainly a big one for me. And my strategy, what I tell my husband is, look, Rich, if you haven't lied to me yet about what time we need to be there, I mean, we've been married how many decades? It's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, which I've, I'm so much better than I used to be. And, and I had to get better with kids because when your kids start getting detentions because you're late, mm-hmm. you know, you've got to do something different. And so I'm just curious if you working with your clients around tardiness, are you really able to change that? Or ultimately, is it just like every time we try and 
we get a little bit better, but it's just always going to be a problem. I think there's definitely, there's tons of tools that you can use in systems. Well, oh, oh, and can, I, can I make a comment too? Because yeah. that's what I thought was really brilliant. I will leave with or without you, but then you say, but it has nothing to do with, you know, the fact that I love you. And yeah. I just laughed because you're absolutely right. If my husband ever said that to me, mm-hmm. I would be in that chair. It reminds me of, I don't know if you've ever watched like reruns from Everybody Loves Raymond, but his wife is always late. And so I guess in his family, it was called AIS, ass in seat. And so he's so upset because she's always late and he's got this big award thing and he's getting an award and he wants to be there. And she's like, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be, it just reminded me of me. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be on time. She is ready to go. She's got her makeup all done. She looks in the mirror and she takes a curling iron and she's like, oh, there's one thing. And she puts the curling iron in her hair and it gets stuck. He literally leaves without her. And he's never done that before. And I'm thinking, you know, if my husband did that one time, I don't think I'd ever be late again. Exactly. The natural consequences. ADHDers do really well with like consequences, like a lot of positive, but also a lot of natural ones, which is why I love the outdoor learning environment because there's constant feedback, right? And so I think that's where I got a lot of my good executive functioning skills. And in my relationship, it's opposite because my husband's, you know, born and raised in Mexico. <laughs> and oh, like, yeah, even the lateness of like the two countries, like just so yes. desperate. And then he's always like, but my sister is late. Like she's way later than me. And I'm like, but your sister isn't here. And so <laughs> I don't care about your sister. Yeah. In and of itself. So like, I will say like, I've hit, um, you know, I think two phases of like ADHD hell and torture in life, really when all your other systems kind of have to be replaced or are taken away from you. And so uh, I would say like, for me, I used to kind of run late and be like, ah, the chaos, go, 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 go. Yes. And I don't even know exactly when it changed, but that's not it at all (laughs) anymore until like we, you know, we... My husband was in Mexico for a few weeks unexpectedly. And we also had the like the winter freeze here where everything was frozen. School was out for like five days in a solo parenting. It was like, oh my goodness. You know, I was taking my kid to school in the morning. I haven't done that all year. And I was like, oh, 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 this is fun. Like this is, it's not fun. It's stressful. But I was like, oh, this is why so many ADHDers and I used to like, use kind of like that sense of urgency and like the, you know, the, oh, red light, green light, all this stuff. Like it kind of gets you going in something that's a really boring task, right? Yeah. Cause you don't want to start. You don't want to start. You don't want to start. Oh, yeah. But I I definitely have way better systems that rarely happens for me anymore. And Mm -hmm. on, and even for my spouse, he's, he's way better. Cause like, and now he's the one who does drop off in the mornings and we're like, we switched to a public school and he's like, I can't, and I'm like, see, this is why I like, you know, I had reinforcement here. Like there's like a reason why we see this time issue so different. And when we're in Mexico, I give up all sense of time. I'm like, I have no idea. I have my snacks. I'm just like, whenever it happens, it happens, you know? So we're like able to like adapt. And I think that's why I liked also living in Latin America a lot when I was younger. Yeah. Where I was like, oh, this is great. Like you just do it when you feel like it. And like, you know, like... Um, there is just less consequences, I guess. But I, I do think like if it's important to you, you have those conversations and you have those supports. And there are certain things like, you know, that um that I know that are important to my spouse that like I will do or I'll get extra supports in so that way I can show up in that way. And of course they go away when like something 
pretty intense happens or like, you know, like it freezes over in Texas and school shuts down and nobody has electricity, you know, like when these big events happen, you have to know how to reset. And I think that's the biggest thing that like, you know, for ADHD treatment is learning what systems work for you, acknowledging that it's going to change as like life changes and, and being in it together and working for it together. And there's certain things like for him being on time, like, you know, I don't really care. I'll tell him if it's really important or not. And we have kind of the way that we work it, but it's like, how much does it cost him versus how much does it cost me? And like being able to hold like all of the differences, I think that makes it, um, it, it changes it. It releases it. And the same thing, like I actually, that example, I did leave him when we were going to a surprise birthday party once and he hated it. He was so angry. And I'm like, I'm sorry, there's certain things you can't be late to a surprise. You ruined the surprise if you're that person, you know? Yeah, I would have been so upset. Oh, he but in the so same angry. vein, it would have been like, hey, good for you, you know? Right. right. But I think it's it sparked different conversations in different ways. And so like we know how to take care of each other in different ways and we know how to communicate it and hold that part. So it's not so jarring to somebody's nervous system of like, because they know like, you know, I'm like, OK, I'm leaving at this time. You know, <laughs> like I, I will I will stop giving reminders and I will prioritize it and go. But like we've all talked about it. And so that's just one of the ways that we cope as a family. But it's like I said, it's interesting because like you know, um, having this latest kind of like sandwich caretaking, you know, executive overload (laughs) hard part of life, um, you know, with aging parents and young and a young kid, like I do see like when I'm off, like, oh, like these things were really hard for me or these systems are actually really helping me. And so it's, it's kind of like in some ways, like a nice reminder, um, to like, and also that growth mindset. Like, I'm like, okay, where is the ADHD or who figured this stage of life out? Like, I put out, like, calls to all the ADHD experts and groups and I'm like, hold on, you know, or I look at something, you know, that's like, I'm like, ah, oh, somebody who is struggling with ADHD totally created this awesome, like, website or awesome app or awesome, you know, like, the list of things that are really helpful because I think that is a way that ADHDers tend to cope by, like, that puzzle-solving piece and trying to, like, process it all and, and wanting to create systems. I think we're really good at creating systems. Sometimes we're a little too creative, yeah. you know? Um, but when you get the right, I think when you get the right treatment, which is what I'm really advocating for and it, with adults, right, of knowing your sensory needs, um, working through the trauma that you probably have, getting some of those, like, just getting the right tools, right? The, the right tools that, like, you can actually choose from. What I, what I tell my clients is, okay, you were just given a box of baby clothes and you kept on being told, oh, just use this planner or just put things away and and then you'll be fine. Just leave 10 minutes early. Like, you know, like it, it, and these clothes don't fit your brain <laughs> or your body, right? And so what I say is like, I'm gonna give you a box of clothes and we'll just try them on. Some of them will look good, some of them won't, but they have a chance of fitting you, right? Like great analogy, I love it. Wow. Box of baby clothes. Right. Yeah. And so it's just, it's moving towards that. And so when you are able to get the the right types of support, and I think this is where the non-ADHD partner comes in because they're able to do so much of this, whether it's like helping in the, the, the five pillars or helping make like the breakdown of tasks that's visual, like they're really good at that type of stuff. And so I think it's just this really beautiful 
balance, right? When you get it flowing and everybody's mix is different, but I think they're, you know, I've seen it work. I, yeah. I definitely feel it in my relationship and the nature immersion camp I used to run, not knowing this, but I totally paired the ADHD or with the non ADHD and they were great as like the, the, the two main counselors for each group <laughs> because they, it's the same thing, mutual adoration. Like, wow, this person can like remember the medical documents and like, yeah, yeah. And like throw away the sunblock when it's empty. And the other one's like, wow, like when the kids are doing something, you come up with this like song or this and they can like kind of pipe pipered it. And like, you know, like they, they had a nice balance and I wasn't aware of it at the time, but that totally is what I did. <laughs> like, and it was a great camp, you know, it's like full of ADHD staff, ADHD kids, you know, not diagnosed or I'm not diagnosed. But it was like, an environment that when I look back on it, it was like the one of the best ADHD environments where it's just like everybody's thriving and you didn't have to have ADHD to thrive in it either. Because I think these are all good nourishments. It's just like for ADHD, it just kind of can be a make or break. Okay. So we are running really late. I could talk about this forever, but we cannot leave this episode without talking about division of labor. Yes, because I think that is so much of what women with ADHD struggle with. It's just not fair. Yep. Yep. Well, okay. So I think that's like one of the best things in my relationship that like we we figured out before the fair play method came about. Um, we were probably all struggling in it together. Well, in a heterosexual relationship with a man and woman, there can be a lot of these differences. And I try to put that in the book, but the editors are like, nope. Like, you focus on the one thing, Anita. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, Me um, too. Oh, my God. I'm like, I want this to be a feminist perspective. No. Nope. Yeah. yeah. But, but then, but then, like you said, you read it and it flows. And I'm like, wow, this is magical. Oh, I know. I guess like, I know what they're talking topic. about. Yeah. <laughs> like, we could talk about these things. It doesn't have to be in the book. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's why you have to do podcasts to get all the other stuff you wanted yeah. to talk about. And yeah, so I think like I, I do think that fair play method um, is really good for. Uh, Are you talking about Eve Rodsky right now? Yes. Oh, my God. That is like the best book, isn't it? I haven't read the book. I've just heard about it. And, and I was like, oh, that's what we do. And that's what I was helping other cards? people. Do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we don't use the cards because she she I watched the documentary. Um and I realized that like, so she, the book and her method came out like after me and my spouse had kind of already redone some of the gender norms and stuff. And that was like some, definitely like some hard works and some painful conversations and to, to really mm. confront like kind of how we were ingrained. And neither of us wanted that. Like our, our values and ideals were way more egalitarian and, and breaking mm-hmm. it up. Uh, there was a couple of articles I sent him that helped him really understand, like kind of like have hit, he had a switch. Yeah. And two, like, you know, like, it's just, it's so hard. And our kid did not sleep through the night until he was three. And we should say, just so you know, our listeners are like, what the hell are they talking about? What we're talking about is the division of labor in a family and how society basically teaches us that we are the executive function for everything that has to do with family, children, the household. Am I missing something? Uh, no, yeah, you're talking about the mental labor and the invisible. Yeah, and, load, and we right? are no better. Studies show that we are no better at this. We are not better multitaskers. Nobody's brain works well when it's multitasking, or works as well as when it's not multitasking. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, and I think her method, the fair play method, where it's like you want, you bring awareness to it. Like you were talking about in, in the beginning of my book, we're bringing awareness to what all these tasks are. And we're bringing value to it because any female task is like devalued in society. So it's just like, when you look at like, at least like for ADHD moms and for me too, it's just like, wow, I was like, I loved working with kids. I loved it. I hate kind of this parenting stuff. And like, unless I would have created like a daycare or something where I would be like, you know, using my ADHD like powers for that. It's a lot of mundane tasks. It's a lot of boring executive functioning parts. Like it can be hard to get your sensory needs met, especially if you have like physical postpartum issues or even like mental health postpartum issues, you know, like, and it's just so much stuff and so many things to manage in this country in particular. And we're, and we're so isolated and we just don't have a lot of social supports, like including like there's no paid parental leave that's guaranteed. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's a lot of work for the female, but bringing that to awareness. women of color struggle much more. I mean, I'm sure we are extremely privileged. Yes. Both of us, right? Yeah. We're able to get help, you know, take the time to find all these resources. And then if you have children that also have ADHD or neurodivergent, I don't even, it's too much. Women who have ADHD and our parents definitely have a harder time because of the societal norms and these like internal messages of this being what you're worth. And it can bring up a lot of stuff where if you did grow up in a lot of neurotypical environments that like something's wrong with you. And you can also see the superstar ones that are like, oh, using their creativity and making the cool little snacks and doing all these things. So you can see it on both ends, right? And there's some ADHD moms that are, do really thrive because it's like chaos that they thrive in. And maybe they have help for the executive functioning tasks or maybe because it feels very important. So you have it on both ends. But what I see more in my field, because that's who comes to me, is um, the moms that are really struggling. And I can really relate to that as well because like I definitely struggled with just the organization of all this stuff. And also just like, there's no praise, there's no excitement, there's no novelty in a lot of the types of tasks that are done. Um, and so bringing awareness and then using your strengths to divide up tasks equally. And I like how the fair play method prioritizes rest, right? Rest and free time. So it's not like who's doing what or this. And so it kind of takes out this like... Um, you know, what does society value more and making sure both people get rest. And I will say like, that was hard for me when we were changing that in our, in our dynamic. But I would tell myself like, oh, my husband's having an appropriate response. It sucks to do dishes, him sighing, you know, cause I never, you know, as females, we, we get, we have to like suck it up and make sure nobody feels uncomfortable if we don't like doing something. I, and so it's like, and, and after like two or three weeks, you know, he, he is way better at dishes than I am. Uh-huh. And I even had like a moment where I was just like, oh my goodness, like, you know, we got a new dishwasher. I didn't even know how to use it. I was like, I'm going to help him out, you know? And I was like, oh, what is this? Like, what are all these buttons? And I had to ask him. And I was like, wow, like that is, that's pretty huge, you know, I think for a female, at least my age. Having those moments, but it's also been super, super helpful that we really worked through it. And I think that growth mindset and acknowledgement pillar of working through those things were really important. But I like the fair play method from what I know of it, of like bringing the clarity, having like the consequence, right? Um, And also having the autonomy. So it takes a lot of that parent-child dynamic that can, that ADHD, non-ADHD couples tend to fall into without realizing it out of the mix. So 
And I think it's also the same thing of like that positive acceptance of just like people get to do it their way, right? Like it doesn't have to be done in the super yep like norm and that like if you're looking at the functionality of it and how does it make your home function best. And there's great like, you know, supports out there for that that I encourage my clients to get if they if they are able to whether it's like an ADHD organizer or like getting somebody into their home to do those systems for them. And I've done that a couple times in my life, especially with all the baby stuff. I was like, I don't know what to do with this. But I think that that piece for the balancing the household chores and the ADHD, you hold that fair play method. And then you also consider like that you like in one of my courses, like I have like, how do you know if it's ADHD friendly? So you go through like a list or like my group for the non-ADHD partner, like this is what we do. We like write down the things that they would want. Uh, to change in their household. And then we go through and see which ones are ADHD friendly or not. And so we like work, literally work through setting them up for success and trying like small things in an ADHD friendly way. And then building on that to also help the non-ADHD partner learn what that is. And also for a lot of times if the ADHD or hasn't gotten the supports they need, they might not even know uh, what's so, hard for them or not. So is that the ADHD relationship boot camp? I, I, oh, you I can't, can't remember. <laughs> It might be in there. Uh, what, what was that? I mean, is that in a group or is it individual? Well, so the, what I was talking about, the non-ADHD partner, I do a fall and winter non-ADHD partner group. It's just a virtual support one um, that's small. Uh, and so that is part of the that non-ADHD like kind of support group. And that's just reading the book. Like we go chapter to chapter and we kind of also give like some personal feedback to help each person kind of tweak and apply it to what's going on in their personal situation. But yeah, so the kind of learning what is ADHD friendly or not. Um, and I tend to do this in the trainings that I do in person now too, of just like learning what they are and then learning the tools that might set them up for success. And so a lot of times people just don't even realize that like, you know, like it was like, oh, uh, you know, the, I just want them to put their clothes in their hamper. And I'm like, well, do you have a closed top or an open top? And they're like, oh, it's closed. I was like, yep, not going in there. I was like, put an open top in there. And then like maybe make even a sign where it's like you get some points for it. Like, you know, like you can you can make it however like fun you want to make it. And you always have to like sparkle it up every once in a while. But like kind of just knowing what are some of the things in most households that are really not ADHD friendly. Um, so I'm curious then in the ADHD relationship boot camp, do couples join it? And is it a group, meaning there are other couples in the boot camp as well, or is it done individually per couple? So I'll offer private sessions if people want to work on certain things particularly. But what I've really tried to do, um, because I stopped the in-person boot camps during the pandemic, I've started to put them online. So it's like a self-paced course that's I think I haven't seen any online courses ADHD friendly, so I'm like creating it. But, you know, some of my, my best friends who do have ADHD were like, oh, my goodness, I don't want to stop. I have to go like write my lecture for this. But like it was fun. So I was like, OK, that, that's what I'm going for, you know, with lots of breaks and a lot of sensory information. So basically it's like kind of based on the book. So it's like the growth mindset that's up right now is like really giving you and walking through the activities. Because some of the couples do struggle to do the activities in the book. They need a little bit more guidance. And so I make it like game-like. I try to like do as much like stuff around the house and 
a lot of talking, a lot of like sensory breaks, um, but really trying to break down the concepts because these pillars are great, but it's like, then what does it look like? Because most people have never actually experienced an ADHD, like healthy environment. And so I'm trying to bring more awareness of what that looks like and practicing it. So all of the five pillars will be up eventually online. The praise one will be released next. And I'm actually hoping to do an in-person boot camp again. It's in the works and I'm pairing with an occupational therapist as well. So that way we can bring a lot more of the sensory component. And like what she does is like you do you do different activities where you get your sensory system dysregulated so then the other person can see and experience what that's like. Um, so I'm super excited for, for that potentially to come back. And it, it's going to be at the summer camp uh, that I used to run. So it's like, oh, I can just imagine you know, kind of like the scavenger hunts and trails in nature and doing different like, you know, um, challenges that are based off of what tool that we learned. Because how I, I work with ADHD is I try to incorporate all different types of learning, but a lot of it is like short, here's the information, then you practice it. Exactly. That's, it's what we need. So where can people find you if they want to know more about your boot camps, more about what you do, all of it? At my website, Anita Robertson with a T, Robertson.com. I have all the information on there, the links to get to the ADHD boot camp or the non-ADHD partner group. Okay, so that is going to be in our show notes, but let's say them now so that if someone's just listening and they don't want to go to the show notes. So your Facebook group, tell me if I'm wrong, is Facebook, obviously.com forward slash building resiliency. Does that sound right? That does sound correct. Okay. And what about your Instagram and your TikTok? What's that handle? That is strength in your mind, but like spelled I-N. So it's spelled wrong, like strength in, like inside your okay. mind. So strength in your mind. Yes. And your LinkedIn is just Anita Robertson. I believe so. Yes. Okay. So Anita, oh my gosh, I could literally talk with you forever. Thank you so much for spending time with us here today. And congratulations on this brilliant book. Well, thank you so much. I'm not just saying it. We're going to put this in our book list. Oh, yay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank I you for really spreading good. the word. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. I'm excited to read your book too. So oh, whenever it comes out. <laughs> so Anita, thank you. And that is what we have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Anita, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me over at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com, where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.